this time on Sonic Earth Expeditions. I'm somebody who thinks with my ears. Sonic thinker, creator, and composer Bruce Odland. I'm so fortunate to have as my guest Bruce Odland. Bruce creates sound installations with Sam Owinger that transform the sounds of cities into music. He's the founder of the Tank Center for Sonic Arts in Colorado. And most recently, he collaborated with actor and playwright Wallace Shawn to reinvent two of his plays as a podcast. Hi, this is Bruce Odlin talking, and I'm somebody who thinks with my ears. I'm kind of a relic in this particular type of atmosphere where there's so many visual thinkers about and visual planning about and the results of visual planning about, but I'm kind of like a throwback to a hunter-gatherer in terms of my ears. I make art, I make sound art, I'm a composer. I work with people making plays and museum exhibitions and movies and podcasts and different things. And in each of these, I endeavor to represent the spirit of hearing and listening in depth because I find it particularly informative in our time when people are so distracted, pummeled, and carried away by visions. Oh, visionary, you're a visionary. Oh, I have a vision for this, and here's my vision statement. But where's your listening statement? I like to work on all those types of things I mentioned, and I'm coming from the point of view of having a, a listening statement. Yes, we can understand the world by listening to it, and we can act by what we hear, not just by what we see. And is seeing really believing? Wait a minute, isn't it the things that you can't see that you have to believe in? Like God and currency and just rewards? So I kind of think that maybe hearing is very, very important to us at this time when we're so discouraged by so many different factors that are being held up as stories of some kind of pummeling stories for us to believe in. I think, listen for yourself. I'm a sonic thinker and I, and I make stuff that I think about too, so I don't just think, I make. We all get acclimatized, even to Midtown New York, where there are damaging frequencies 24 hours a day to the threshold of pain. And in order to be civilized, we, we do shut off a lot of our operating system. Let's say it like that. You could say God-given senses if you, were in, if you go in that direction. You could say all of the senses that, 
that we acclimatize to in a long period of evolution haven't left us during the industrial age. Evolution takes much longer to take root in our bodies and transfer into deaf ears and giant eyes and no nose or whatever we'd need in a city. I don't know. We have a lot of brain plasticity which acclimatizes us to things and we're able to override things. But that doesn't mean that the skills and operating system of really hearing like hunter-gatherers has left our heads. It's still there. It can be woken up quite easily. We live very much in this in this world full of, of, of sounds, unwanted sounds. And, and sometimes, you know, we can tune them out. But do you think that we've grown numb to all of this because of noise pollution? One way to look at it is that we've grown numb. Another way to look at it is that we're very accomplished non-listeners, that we've used a lot of our mental powers and our abilities of filtering our hearing to become real professionally almost deaf. Meanwhile, keeping the operating system, the ability to hear, is still in us at the same time. So if you think about this like the wrong comparison, a human bot, where you're using a certain amount of processing power of your megabrain to eliminate all the things that you'd prefer not to hear. And we're getting pretty good at this. We can mentally subtract the sirens, mentally subtract the impact of bus brakes, mentally subtract. That's a lot of math. In some studies, it's maybe up to half of the human processing power, eliminating types of sounds that you're pretending that you're not really hearing. This extreme ability to filter out costs us something. It costs us a separation from the world. It costs us shrinking our sphere of taking in information of all the sounds around us to maybe the size of a cell phone instead of an entire city full of inputs and outputs of electricity and power and transport. And if one were standing on the street, able to overcome the shock and really listen, we'd hear what makes up a city. We'd actually hear who we are as a city, because all those sounds are us. What can we tell about ourselves from those kinds of sounds? Well, it's such a listening exercise, isn't it? Because if you're out in the desert and you hear one thing you don't understand, you can think about it a while and wait for it again. Ah, that's what they meant when I was reading those stories. That must be a coyote. Oh, oh, that scuttling sound might be tumbleweed. You have all these soloists, which your brain can actually process. Now, we don't really do that too much because we've reduced our trigger inputs to things like, ah, I've got a text. Ah, I've got a message coming in. And, oh, that's a siren, but I'm on the sidewalk, so I'll ignore it. Oh, that's a siren, but I'm driving, so I better pull over. A series of meaningful signals in a sea of noise. And we have already prefigured our listening to listen only to those specific things that might be meaningful to us. However, if you make a bold choice to open your filters, which you can really, 
it's really quite possible for you to redirect your uh, information flow and sculpt your attention and decide to make the radical notion of connecting your brain to all the things that are hitting your eardrums instead of the preordained signals that you're going to accept, then the city's rather something. And your question of what can we tell by listening to a city requires uh, quite a lot of skill and processing power to ferret it out, to listen, because there's so many things happening at once. One could easily make some snap judgments about those so many things happening at once. Most of them are fossil-fueled. Most of them are energy-expensive. Most of them haven't had a whole lot of thought towards what would happen to a human body if those sounds hit it. So they're kind of like stray sounds that we think of like trash. We think they don't have any meaning. So we bundle them in a little plastic and we call them noise and we don't think about them. So I think if one were to take that radical step of connecting one's brain to one's eardrums in a rather unfiltered way and untying the trash bag of sounds from a city and exploring it like a rather important midden of trash, of things, of refuse that the culture didn't realize were important, but might be. Let's imagine that each of those trash sounds, when taken out of that trash midden and explored by a brain listening to the world around them, even in real time, even without a recording, even with nothing but one's ears and one's humanity and one's diligence, it's possible to unpack a city. It's possible to start to notice that that noise fluctuates, that it's, that it's conducted by traffic lights, that it has some reflections coming from buildings which were made in certain eras, and the ones that were made in the 1880s sound softer than the reflections of the ones that were made in the 1990s of glass and steel, which actually amplify every sound and bounce it back and forth forever, that one can hear the sound of an idling truck around a corner, and that that low frequency bends around the corner, and that when I'm standing listening in the middle of the city, all those low frequencies are coming from all over the city because they're bending around the corners, but all the high frequencies are just coming zipping right at me like straight arrows. That all these different frequencies and energies of all of the work that's being done in the cities, you're basically fine. That you're listening to this rather thrilling sound of the output of the economy of New York City and all its inputs and outputs. If you can manage to stand there and absorb these things which are way out of scale with what a hunter-gatherer was constructed to be able to withstand. And some of them, in fact many of them, are causing trigger responses that would release a whole bunch of adrenaline in a human being who hadn't tried to sort those things out, who hadn't clamped his hearing down and become a professional non-listener so that the stress levels of hearing constant triggers that would make a hunter-gatherer run across the city as fast as possible, jump in the water and swim across to New Jersey in hopes of a quieter environment. So it's really a rather radical notion to actually open up your filters to a city because everything is almost in a damage zone. 
it's uh, so you have to kind of calm yourself if you're going to listen to a city you have to unpack it slowly with a lot of generous attention to your body uh, to your mind give yourself time find a place where you can hear some soloists go down to the river listen to the boats go to the tip of manhattan listen to the water listen to the jets listen to the helicopters uh, go to another street in a quiet part of town ah that's what a, the roar of these idling trucks sound like that's cool and slowly you can piece together a more complex idea about uh, much in a way an anthropologist would try to study a culture not by sampling one spot at one instant but by taking a dedicated approach and sampling many spots at many instances. Oh, when I come back to this spot at 12 p.m., does it sound the same as it does at lunch hour? Oh, does this courtyard full of children always have a courtyard full of children? No. The complexity of the information you get is really quite startling in terms of the whole life of the city, the vibrancy of the city, the stoplights conducting the traffic, a rush hour, uh, weekends, uh, August, COVID. What was it like to listen to the city during COVID? There's a great city listening starter kit. Who has ever been able to hear the baseline of the city without all of the chorus laying on top of it, the chorus of helicopters, trucks, HVAC. Well, the HVAC was still there, so that's what that sounds like. It's all very fascinating. I'm really glad you brought up the stress about it. Do you think that by doing the intellectual exercise that you're talking about, that it can help a person reclaim their sonic environment and therefore, you know, help mitigate that, uh, the effects of that kind of stress? Well, the results aren't in yet, really. I mean, as a long-term dedicated listener, to things like that and what it's done to me and for me in terms of my understanding I think actually it really almost becomes like a meditation it almost becomes like how to take in those sounds without having them damage you how to treat them as music how to treat them as the pattern of life how to actually accept their meaning so in a way it's a little bit like a zen meditation of letting it pass through you without holding on to it and i think whether that's healthier than uh, pretending it doesn't exist and having your body absorb it anyway and having unintentional cortisol levels flying through your body and every time a a big bus break happens right near you, sending a knife of sound in and not running, or uh, all that stuff does have its effect on your health. It's well proven. They've even done all over Europe, they've done maps of the sound in Europe. What for? For the purpose of understanding their sounds? No. For the purpose of charging more for insurance to people who live in heavy sound zones. So, it's still a step in the right direction, but maybe for the wrong reason. Let's take it. Let's use the information anyway. When you talk about opening your ears, is this what it means? I would say that there's probably 
safer places to open your ears and how to be part of the places that you're in. I think that part of closing one's ears is closing oneself to the experience of being part of the environment. And maybe in the city, that's the smartest thing to do, close yourself off from the environment. Because really, are you trying to take in an entire city or your subset of a city, the things you know, the places you want to be, and then you try and get there somehow. So a series of positive thought of places you'd like to be with inconvenient and maybe slightly dangerous travel and unpleasant circumstances between those. So what you're actually trying to take in is those spots in the city that are important to you and trying to mitigate the effects of getting there in some way or another. Now, maybe there's a way to stroll the city and then you actually are going slow enough to do it and to take it all in and it's like a walking meditation of what's a city like. And that's pretty great. A sound walk in a city can be a real thrill and a real boost and a real fun thing when you're noticing on purpose instead of trying to shut out. And that can be a interesting boon and you may find out that you're a little fatigued afterwards and why well partly because you're noticing the reality of the situation you'd be equally fatigued if you were shutting it out plus you'd be doing all the math of shutting it out with your brain too so you might even be more fatigued but you wouldn't have noticed it the difference is noticing and taking it in and when you do that even if you're not next to a frog pounder in a forest, you're being part of your environment. You're taking in the environment of your city and you're relishing in some way, even if it's too loud, the power of it, the electricity of it, the majesty of this accomplishment that all these humans can live in this place and it works, it works, it works, you know? And that's just really pretty amazing. It's rough, but it's amazing. So that's the boon. And then you can actually start to understand your city in a new and fresh way, not just your little chunk of it that you're trying to accomplish that day, but the city as an instrument, as an orchestra, as a proud, huge orchestra that has all this amazing complexity and power to it. So one has a chance to understand that, but the first part is to just experience that and maybe practice it a little bit. It's easier if you first go to the froggy pond or the stand of trees and just allow your hearing to take you into a wider zone of experience and then realize that you're not shutting out the environment around you. Not listening is indeed shutting out the environment around you. So when we do listen, we expand our sphere of encompassing everything around us. We're taking it in, we're part of it, we're being part of it. And it also expands our circle of compassion. So picking up on what you were saying, I'm really glad that you brought up Soundwalks because um, I first met you at a workshop at the Rubin Museum. Um, I think you called it Ear Yoga. And I remember, what I remember most, there were a lot of exercises to open our ears, but um, what I remember most is being led around with our eyes closed. One, per Each person in the line had their hand on the shoulder of the person in front of them, and you led us around and stopped us at certain places, and we just listened. 
um, and it was really cool. Why did you create these workshops? First, let's say I think that our culture is out of balance, and I think in some ways it's pretty sick. And I don't want to push it towards that sickness. I don't want to push the envelope towards sickness. If I have a chance on the planet, I want to push it towards wellness, towards balance, towards harmony in some way. So anytime I do get an invitation to bring people into the idea of listening and hearing as part of a joyful, primal experience that it is, and can be, and simply is for nearly everybody with this most smallest part of effort to do that, and with an invitation, um, I'd say yes. So the Reuben said, well, what would you like to do here? And I thought, yeah, let's do some ear yoga. Oh, what's that? Well, here's a chance to define ear yoga. How great, I thought to myself. So I wrote up a couple things defining ear yoga, and Tim McHenry there helped me refine what that uh, message outgoing to the Rubin audience would be like. And basically the thought is quite simple. Uh, hey, we still have our hunter-gatherer kit inside our head, but we don't use it. So I put together a series of exercises that I've done with kids, with college students, with architecture students, etc., and put it into this sort of form of a 45-minute, hour-long exploration. And it's always easy to just use the tools at hand, the room at hand, a few cups, a few pennies dropping on the floor. What's that? A penny, yes. You can identify a penny with your eyes closed. Wonderful. Let's move on. What else can we identify? And there's a lot. People are really good at this when asked. So ear yoga is really simply an invitation Really, it's an invitation to concentrate on a skill that you have that you really weren't focusing on before, maybe didn't use, maybe could find some delight in to be able to employ those wonderful. I, I think when I talk to kids, it's like you have secret powers, uh, you have secret powers of hearing things, and drop a stick on the ground. And how long is that stick? And they all put your hands out and measure that stick, right? Okay, and they're all pretty much right. And I hold the stick in between their hands and they're pretty right, you know? Drop a metal object. Well, how long was that? And they guess it. What's the diameter? And they guess it. We're really good at this. We, we just haven't focused on it. It's an invitation. It's an offer. So ear yoga is just an offer to open up the hearing in a joyful way that uh, it really feels good to notice your secret powers. I love that about the kids. That's so great. Why should we do that? Why is it important to become better listeners, do you think? Well, I think that there are things that we can't see. And in a visually dependent culture, the things that we can't see go rather unnoticed. And some of those things are quite important. For instance, the noise of the cities tells us a lot. We can't really see global warming, but we can hear it. 
We can hear the amount of power wasted in a city. It's not efficient. All those motors that create that sound are not built in order to create that sound. The helicopter that flies over is not built and designed in order to create that sound. The trains are not built to create that sound. They're creating transportation. All that sound is wasted energy. All that sound is a waste of the collected solar power that we've mined at great expense and is poisoning our environment. So if we simply even, and this is pontification, this is not science. It is Bruce hopefully thinking that if we can bring attention to hearing, we could solve some things by listening. And I think, just for instance, if we went for the loudest thing in New York City and say, let's fix that, and then go for the next loudest thing in New York City and say, let's fix that, and then keep going down the line until we had a city that was more humane for people who didn't damage our health just by trying to pretend we weren't making those sounds, we would have a quieter, healthier, less polluting New York that would generate less uh, global warming output. It would create less environmental injustice. And we would be able to hear it, and we'd be able to enjoy the cleaner, quieter, more humane environment that was actually activated by us listening to what's too loud, what's too broken. What is that scraping sound? Why do the bus brakes squeal? Why is that cloud of, of sound coming around the corner so loudly from that must be a broken HVAC machine that nobody fixed? Why is that door squealing at the post office? Because it's broken. If we listen, we can fix the things that are broken. That sounds like a motto, really. <laughs> it's really great. In your lifetime of connecting people to their sonic environments, you discovered a very uh, special place, the tank. What is the tank, and how did you find this place? What, what's it all about? The tank is, is really quite a story, and it's a story that started as a young man when I got put on the Chautauqua tour of Colorado by the very first state arts council director, Robert Newman Sheets, a real visionary who could also hear. Lovely man. He wanted to take the arts to all the small towns in Colorado that hadn't had any live performances since the time of the vaudeville circuits. I came through for a completely different reason. I had a giant idea about building soundscapes on the sides of mountains and uh, riding up the ski lifts in the summertime, listening for people to be turned on to the whole music of the spheres. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got a job for you. That's all very nice. And you might be able to do that in 50 years or so, but this summer, uh, I'm going to put you on this tour, okay? So I was on this tour of 60 artists, and we got pretty good at getting towns all excited about the arts as we went along. And our idea, this was in the 70s, 76, uh, we wanted to melt down the cities with arts, these little towns. And it was really thrilling. And by the time we got to our last stop, Rangeley, Colorado, we had 
all the old ladies hula dancing and all the miners uh, watching ballet and people throwing pottery and doing raku firings. And I was the crazy sound artist guy that was no name for that yet. So I was just the crazy guy um, with microphones hanging all over me, making recordings of different towns and playing back collages of them for the entertainment of the people before the show began. Here's your molybdenum shaker table. Here's your oil well. Here's this, but I would make sort of interesting rhythmic deals out of them and loop them and play them back in a way that people would recognize their environment in an interesting way. Then the shows would go on. So I was wandering around Rangeley with all my gear, and this muddy four-wheel truck came up and said, Are you that sound guy? Yep, get in. Okay. I got in, and then I was really, whoops thinking, who are these guys? Where are we going? As they did their hazing drive around the dirt hills, and I was thinking, I'm never going to see my family again. They pulled up to this weird, bizarre sort of steel thing that looked like a giant version of the Jules Verne trip to the moon capsule, that sort of way. And there was a round black hole in the side of it, and they said, get in. And I was thinking, Am I going to throw my ID out of the doorway and let it blow away in the wind so somebody finds some trace of me as I get in? Well, okay, I'll get in. I got in, turned up all my microphones, and they banged on the side of this uh, steel thing with the two-by-fours and threw rocks at it. And it was just a cacophony, but after they stopped, it, it rang for like 40 seconds and turned into this incredible music. And their sonic hazing was... A turning point, really. I thought, this is just amazing. So I came back later that night. You could only get long, th you could only get instruments of a small diameter through this hole that you had to, sort of a porthole. My friend Elton Norwood was traveling with the Koto, a Shamusen, and a Shakahachi flute. So those were the first things that we recorded in there. And I'd been coming back ever since. Um, eventually, and there's much more to this story. Eventually, uh, we ended up getting offered this place, and we ran a Kickstarter to purchase it, and we fixed it up, and we had our first opening in 2015. And it was really amazing. All these people came from all over, the townspeople, and we, this is a success story of unlikely... Uh, bedfellows working together to make something quite amazing. So the, a local woman who had started her own church, Elaine Yuri, uh, said, I'll build you a road. Uh, you know, uh, the local pipeline company helped us by bringing us welders and the, the mayor helped, everybody helped, the town manager uh, and our whole tribe of crazy musicians from different coasts coming in, uh, from also from Boulder, from Denver, where I used to live, from New York, from California, all working with the local people, which is a completely different culture than ours. There are probably not very many hot-button topics that we would agree upon, but we agreed that this was worth doing, and we did it. We pulled it together. We managed to scrape together the money. We figured out what a change of use permit is. We got it brought up to international code as an assembly hall so 50 people can go in. 
We raised the money for a container, which then has been outfitted with state-of-the-art recording gear. There have been many, many beautiful concerts there, a uh, room full of teeth recorded there. Uh, it's interesting to see what happens when you have a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer and all these singers in the same cafe as all of the uh, petroleum engineers and workers and Everything mixes up in a, actually quite a beautiful way. Quite interesting socially what's going on there in terms of people working together and what happens when the hammering, yammering sound that drives you apart is put aside and you just say, hey, no, let's do this together. It's powerful. It's really wonderful. Tell me what it's like. What is the tank like? Like when you step into the tank, what is that like? Yeah, I think the reason why the whole tank thing works is because it's for real. I know everybody says, awesome, awesome, that was awesome. But there is an actual real sense of awe that comes up from your body when you step inside there and you're inside your own sound writ large. Your first footstep could last 11 seconds, so already when you take one's first step, your senses are reeling a little bit, trying to grasp what's going on because your, your footstep might become huge and float around in the ceiling, and you might rustle just a little bit of clothing, and that comes back swirling around you, and then maybe you hazard to sing a little bit, and your voice just reaches up into the heavens, and like a cathedral, but there's really no guidance here in terms of which god should be collecting your energy. In fact, you should be collecting your energy. There's no iconography whatsoever. It's just an industrial accident that it's there. It's 70 feet tall, 40 feet wide, quite dark. You're in the middle of a space that doesn't have much visual information, so your senses are flip-flopping and inverting, and your, and your listening gets huge your ears get huge your brain starts to glow with the glory of just hearing like that and so everything in you kind of shifts your breathing shifts your listening shifts you sing a little bit and then you turn your head and your voice sweeps around the place and and dances in the space and you can sing a chord with yourself you can sing parts with yourself or you just strike a giant marimba key that somebody brought us and and it just fills the space in the most beautiful way that you can instead of just like going clink it's like tasting a fine wine to hear that one note it just expands and then has aftertastes of sound and then swirling aftertastes of sound and it lasts and lasts and lasts so you learn a lot, it doesn't feel like learning, it just feels like wonder. But after you step out, your ears have changed, and you probably want to come back.
I have the great pleasure for 30 years to work with my compatriot, Sam Auinger, who's an Austrian sound composer, also a sonic thinker, with whom I've been working on this idea of um, the hearing perspective of the world. We talk about what we hear, we try to understand cities, we try to understand nature. So we recorded the Rhine in different types of flow conditions in four different seasons, uh, making a simple bow, putting a contact microphone on this bow, letting the river drag the string downstream and letting the tension of the bow pull it back upstream, basically like a violin works with the violin uh, pulling the string away and then the string snapping back, and letting the water do that. But when you put such a thing in the water it starts to play melodies it's beautiful it has an overtone series like everything does and the overtone series of the string starts to play up and down depending on micro changes in the current of the river that you can't see you can hear a lot of things you can't see and there's a lot of beauty in these micro currents in a river because they play on the overtones series of the string and in different seasons it's a little bit different so we took Recording, we made many, many, many such recordings because it's, well, I guess to do work like this, you have to be a bit obsessive and it's so beautiful that you want to keep listening. So later on, I wondered what these would sound like in the tank and we set up a playback system and recorded in five channels to capture this, the spatial aspects of the tank. And when these beautiful, beautiful uh, river melodies from the Rhine filled the tank, they just blossomed into this giant field of overtones swimming around with this absolutely gorgeous sense that it was being played by nature, not by people. We built the instrument and the Rhine played the melody and then the tank reverberated it. So. Aside from the strange notion to do this in the first place, there's not much ego involved in the music that resulted. It's the river playing the tank. And some people are just trying to set up the gear. And I think that's why it, it has that unforced feeling of beauty to it, that um, it feels like uh, sunlight or a natural element, or it, it has the feeling of... Uh, 
of a nice breeze uh, in the springtime after winter. It, it feels like nature a bit, even though it's melodic. I have to admit that I've, I've thought of describing the sound in watery ways because it seems like that might communicate well. I kind of feel like when I'm playing in there, the sound is swimming around me like a, a giant beluga swimming in the tank. It's a tank and it was built for water. It was built to collect all the water that all the steam engines needed to cross the desert. And oddly enough, there's no railway there. So it's a bit of an accident and a mystery that took a while of researching to find out how it actually got there with no railroad. But it was built for water. It was built for mixing chemicals in water uh, for these. So it's, it seems natural that we have a mixing console out there and we have a watery sound inside that we capture for sure. Another project with Sam Owinger is a sound installation in Zurich. So this piece collects sounds. Well, it actually doesn't store them, but we have we have tuning tubes which generate overtone series in response to all the noise around. Think of a didgeridoo, the way when you blow on the end of a didgeridoo and the only thing that can come out is harmonies that are going up and down there, the overtone series, much like an alp horn or like a, when you play the overtones on the string of a guitar. It's sympathetic resonance happens inside these tubes, so you can input noise and you get out harmony. The microphone inside the tube allows you to listen to that harmony version and then you can decide by where to place the output of that in real time and we make very special speakers that have a nice feeling to them outdoors and the sound comes out of those speakers and that means you have a zone of harmony that's generated by the city itself like a living overtone series that the that the city is regenerating constantly now, it makes a really beautiful sound, like a, like a chanting monk, or like a didgeridoo, or like a little bit like an alphorn, but it only responds to things around it. It doesn't really make anything. If a big train comes by, then a low tone from the train can come out, or if a motorcycle goes by, the higher overtones start humming. If a jet goes by, it brings a whole chord into the space, and then if, so, if it gets quiet, the whole thing settles down and it just barely speaks at all. So 
this is part of placemaking. It's part of humane placemaking that it doesn't really control anything. It's not trying to shout at you. There's no advertisement. There's no musical style that's supposed to make you feel hip or repelled. Um, it's just taking all the sounds of the city and creating harmony from them instead of noise. This has an interesting thing that happens to your brain when you hear that instead, because the brain actually, it's pretty expensive on the brain to decode noise. It requires a lot of higher processes, but listening to harmony is one of the first thing that the brain decodes on the way into the audio cortex. Almost number one, you listen for harmonious sounds for the overtone series for harmonic structures. Why? Maybe to recognize your mother's voice and not starve. Maybe to find your way in a dark cave without falling to your death. Who knows, but somehow it is installed in our evolutionary traits to recognize harmony. It makes it a simpler process to decode where you are. You start to hear your environment musically instead of as a series of piled up noises. We created a set of speakers that are contrary to the rather square architecture that's there. Everything is done in cubes there to maximize floor space. So we created these sort of elliptical speakers that are big, that are heavy. They're like giant river stones that are maybe a meter and a half uh, wide and a half a meter tall. Uh, shaped somewhat like M&M's, giant M&M's, heavy, looking like stone, but a sort of odd color stu blue stone with lots of particulate in it. They float above the surface of the plaza about an inch high, so you can't quite see easily how they happen to be floating there. And the sound is pointed down underneath them and comes out and billows around so that it sounds the same in all directions. There's no weird spotlighting as you walk past a speaker that's meant to be pointed at somebody who's sitting down. And when you're walking, it just sounds ugly because you walk through the field and it blares at you for a while and then goes away. These are meant to couple with the environment in a rather diaphanous way and spread their sounds generously like sunlight in all directions. Just so thrilled that you made the rather wild decision.
So listen to me, of all people, right at this very moment. I mean, I know you're busy and you're probably just as mixed up about everything as I am. Because since yesterday, well, well, things have obviously changed since yesterday. That's totally clear. Things are definitely different in one way or another. I mean, it's been quite a journey, my God. And the last part of it was so crazy. <laughs> anyway, wait. I have to ask you. Did anyone give you one of these funny little bottles of uh, whatever this is? Because I said, ooh, I'm... When Wally Sean came to me and said he'd like to make a podcast of his two masterworks as a sort of a legacy project for him because these plays were done uh, directed by Andre Gregory and they were all done in in um, very small places with limited audiences so that the intimate impact of the plays could be the most profound in my life thank you and I'm extremely eager to tell you all about me in my life but I have to admit that I've been having terrible memory problems recently, and I must say, the last few years are a complete blank. I, I seriously don't remember them at all. I don't even remember yesterday. I can't remember anything about them. I don't even remember where I was, much less what I did. But luckily for me and you, Several years ago, I actually began work on some autobiographical sketches, which I'd planned to compile into a book, and so I'm going to rely on those quite a bit, you see. And, and before I begin, I just have to say that there's something so delicious to me about this whole experience of talking to you. I mean, <laughs> I don't know where I am, you know, they've put me in a not unattractive sort of rose-colored... Wally is one of our greatest writers. People know him from The Princess Bride and from all his work on Mean Girls and uh, and The Good Wife and everything. He's, he's all over the place in terms of as an actor. But his real genius is as a writer, as a playwright. These are important, profound plays. The... The two plays are Designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colors. We figured out how to record with good podcasting microphones, remote actors, each in their own locations. For Designated Mourner, three. Larry Pine was out on Long Island. Uh, Deborah Eisenberg was upstairs. And Wally was downstairs in their shared space each with their own microphone, each in their own room, as if together we were basically able to track each other on Zoom. And Andre Gregory, who directed the whole thing for 20 years, on a little iPad out on uh, the Cape. And so we did our rehearsals on Zoom, but then we did our recordings connected by Zoom, but with each person recording to their own laptop and then sending me the files to put together 
So then it's a matter of reinterpreting a play for the space between your headphones, working with actors so that the microphone becomes there aside. What's the Shakespearean aside? What's the Shakespearean aside? You know, the, the microphone becomes your stage. And uh, in, in an ideal sort of way, now the audience is an audience of one, individual listeners with headphones or, uh, or some type of speaker. Very intimate like radio, very intimate. The whole idea of a play in a podcast allows us to actually go into the psychology of the play with some incredible precision and intimacy and delicacy. And we're trying to make it as absolutely as good as possible uh, as Wally's legacy of playwriting. And he's been absolutely marvelous to work with. And wonderful, wonderful discussions about uh, the content of the play and my treatment of it. And really an incredibly considerate, brilliant man. And what a treasure to have that relationship to work on such a thing at such a time. Do you have any suggestions for people to become better listeners? Well, one of the suggestions is to just try it, is to just try to listen and hear deeply without doing anything else. Do nothing else. Don't talk at the same time, because when you're talking, you're not listening. So find a spot that makes sense to you, that you feel comfortable in. And it can even be a place where it doesn't apparently have anything interesting going on whatsoever, like the room you normally sit in. Just sit and listen and let go of your thoughts. Don't elaborate them. Just sit and listen. And maybe if it's quiet, you can listen to your blood or to your brain tick or anything else. Listen and open your heart to what you're listening to. Then maybe try another spot and do that for like, give it 20 minutes, not three minutes. Listening is longer than a song. It all happens slow. So the wonderful thing about listening, which may you find annoying at first, is that it doesn't have, it doesn't happen at the same tempo as watching. The eye likes to grab things, identify it, check it off the list. Aha, chickadee, aha, I see a fir tree, aha, oh, that's the new Baskin-Robbins. And the brain easily checks it off the list, but using uh, the analogy or the actually experience of watching people look at one of Sam and my pieces that was at the uh, World Financial Center at the harbor, we put one of those harmonic generating pieces listening to the tides so that we could bring the tides as harmony to people who lived in that area who weren't noticing the tides. Okay, So people would start to walk by, and if they just were looking, they'd just walk out onto the plaza, take a picture of the Statue of Liberty, check it off their list, and move on. But if they happened to, got, if they happened to get um, caught up in listening to one of the 
loudspeakers. These were cube loudspeakers. Then they're adjusting their tempo and they're staying longer and something happens and they hear it and they think, I wonder if I'll hear that again. Maybe they sit down. They start to listen and they start to make connections to all the things around them. That low humming sound is a ferry boat. That chord that comes to me, oh, that's related to the helicopter that went over. And oh, I'm still here and another helicopter went over. I never noticed how many helicopters are going over. Why does it sound different now? Oh, well, maybe the tide is coming up. I hear sort of a watery sound. So the difference between the visual tempo of checking things off your list, ah, right again, and sitting and exploring by listening. The first thing to remember is that listening takes time. And that might be annoying, but actually it's a gift because it does slow you down into a tempo that other things around you are happening. And those things, by listening, you can connect to all of those things. Your, your feeling of what's living around you grows into a larger field of things that you can connect to. And then you slowly and beautifully can feel like you are actually connected to the environment around you, whatever it is, your own living room, the World Financial Center, 49th Street, or a little park somewhere. And uh, feeling connected to all that by listening at hearing tempo rather than visual tempo is... Um, breaks isolation. It makes you feel part of things. And that's a nice feeling. So the reward for slowing down and listening is pretty great. Thank you to my guest, Bruce Odland. You can find out more about his work on his website, bruceodland.net. You've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. Until next time, thank you. And remember, better living through listening. Happy trails. <laughs>